Good morning, church. Will you please open scripture with me to Matthew 5? read verse 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we have to hear the words of our Lord Jesus, and he's talking about marriage. Well, if you were at work or wherever and a friend asked you what marriage is, um, how would you answer? Do you have a, a definition for it or is it something that we know it when we see it but we can't really define it? Could we explain what it's for and what it's not? Are there people who believe and claim to be married uh, but who are in fact not married? And what makes a marriage real? And more, more to the point for most people, what makes a marriage work? And, the, and these are not hypothetical questions at all. I mean, look around. We, we live in a culture that has no clue what marriage is, one way up or down the other. And we talked last week about the sexual revolution and the toll it's taken not only on society, but also on the church. Our society doesn't know how to define marriage, much less, much less explain what it's for and how it works. Thanks be to God, he called me into pastoral ministry at Sun Valley Church um, when I was heading uh, full, full bore into the marriage and family therapy world, and I would say I got the better end of that deal. Um, and I can tell you, the, the reason I bring it up is I can tell you without question that most marriage therapists in this country have no clue what marriage is. They have no clue what it's for. But I have good news, and that is that Jesus does. Jesus does. And as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, we're in the middle of chapter 5. And Jesus is explaining how his redeemed people live lives of holiness out of hearts that love him. And this is in stark contrast to the false righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees who were putting themselves forward as the model of holiness, but in fact missed God's will altogether. And as we come to verses 31 and 32, which is our next section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus moves from discussing anger and discussing lust to now discussing marriage, and particularly divorce and remarriage. But I'm convinced that if we're going to understand and plumb the depths of what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage, we have to get a good look at what Jesus actually thinks about marriage to begin with. And by his help, that's what we'll do today. And so we're actually going to step away from the Sermon on the Mount for just a moment and head over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, if you would go there with me, please. And the reason we're going here is because this is another part of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is discussing divorce and remarriage, but he does it in greater depth than he gets into it in the Sermon on the Mount. And in the process here in Matthew 19, he's going to show us what he thinks about marriage, and especially what marriage is. And now I know that a sermon dealing on marriage isn't going to hit every single person here in this church where they are. Some people aren't married because they're not old enough or mature enough. Some people have been through the agony of divorce and the death of a spouse. 
But what I do hope will happen and have been praying for is that everybody here will be encouraged by what we see here as the ultimate meaning of marriage because that's a meaning that applies to every single person. This, the church is not a group of married people with some tagalongs. The, the, group is the, the church is a company of the redeemed, every single soul for whom Christ died. And so marriage belongs to all of us. And we're going to see how that's the case. Even single people in our church can and should be encouraging their married brothers and sisters to embody what the scriptures say about marriage and holding them accountable when they ignore it. We are to encourage and exhort one another every day so long as it is called today so our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And one of the places where hearts get deceitfully hardened is in marriage. And I hope teenagers will pay careful attention and their parents because this is exactly what you should be preparing for now chasing after soon and enduring and not enduring <laughs> uh, exalting and for the rest of your life and chasing after okay boy that was a slip of the tongue <laughs> didn't happen in first service <laughs> all right let's begin by looking at what marriage is and then we're going to look at marriage's blessings and then we're going to look at the point, what it's all about, all the, what it is and what, what the blessings are is all going somewhere. We're going to look at the point of it all. And then finally, we're going to consider a few ways that uh, things that marriage needs in order to be what God has called it to be, what he has designed it to be. And so here in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1, the scene is set. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command, uh, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Well, the first thing that we see about biblical marriage is that it's a public covenant. Jesus tells us here it is a public covenant covenant. So we had some Pharisees who came and they found Jesus doing one of their favorite things that they like to do, which is to try to entrap Jesus and make it look like somehow he's contradicting what God had revealed in the scriptures through Moses. Of course, they can't do this because Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Moses said, and being the one who gave the scriptures, he's not going to contradict it. But they gave it a level effort, and what they got instead was a lesson on marriage. And Jesus says some pretty deep things about marriage. He says first that in marriage, God joins together a husband and wife. What therefore, man, or what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is God's doing. And we saw that in Genesis 2. 
that this is something that goes all the way back to creation is part of his good creation design. In fact, he calls it very good. And even when two people are atheists and they don't acknowledge that God even exists, he's still the one who gave them the gift of marriage and they're just stealing the credit. And this union is best understood as a public covenant. See, a covenant at its most basic level is an agreement between two or more persons. That's how the catechism defines it. It's a good, simple definition. It's an agreement between two or more persons. And so marriage is an agreement between a husband and a wife to love, cherish, honor, serve, and sacrifice for each other for the rest of their lives. And that's one of the reasons that divorce is so radically harmful is, is because it's a broken covenant. And God takes covenants very seriously. So when Israel came back from captivity in Babylon, they had been sent away to Babylon uh, for their uh, rebellion against God as a nation. Well, they came back, and when they did that, things more or less started out well. But after about 100 years, things had gone back to the way they were before in a not-so-good sense. And the book of Malachi, which is the last Old Testament prophetic book, it's the one right before Matthew, God calls his people to task for a whole list of evils that they had been committing against God and against each other. And in the middle of the book, he confronts husbands who were leaving their wives and marrying presumably younger and um, seductive women from the non-Israelite nations around them. And it, it caused tremendous devastation. Well, listen to what God says about marriage in Malachi 2, beginning in, in verse 14. It says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. It's your wife by covenant. Marriage is a covenant. And not just a private one. Okay, it's not two people deciding between the two of them, hey, let's make a covenant. Woohoo, we're married. There were a couple people at Multnomah Bible College when Jen and I were there who did that. They went off to the beach, they decided, we are married, here's the covenant, let's do what married people do. And all they did was came back sexually immoral, still not married. You know, it was a big, they wrote a newspaper article about it. <laughs> That's not the vision for marriage in the Bible. It's a public covenant. It's recognized by God and the community. It's formally entered into and is legally and spiritually binding. And Jesus testifies to this when he and his disciples go to a wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine. It was a public event that he witnessed and he sanctified it by his presence there. But marriage isn't simply a covenant between any two people. It's a covenant between one man and one woman. And Jesus makes this clear here when he's talking to the Pharisees. Look back at verse 4 and 5. He said, have you not read? In other words, you Bible teachers of Israel, have you not cracked the scriptures to like the first page and understood that from the beginning he made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It's a covenant between one man and one woman. And this is a point of massive confusion. I don't even need to say it, but I'm gonna. It's a point of massive confusion in our culture right now. We have no clue that this is the case, not because we don't know it, but because we've chosen to ignore it as a culture. And even many people who claim to follow Jesus are caught up in the weeds of this confusion. But hear me when I say that no one who follows Jesus can look at a same-sex union and call it marriage because Jesus only sees a marriage covenant as possible between one man and one woman. And by the way, that answers the question that many Christians ask, should we go to a same-sex 
wedding ceremony? And the answer is no, because it gives public testament to something that isn't real. We shall not bear false witness, so let us not participate in false witness. Marriage is between one man and one woman. No polygamy in marriage, no homosexuality in marriage, no transgenderism in marriage. And by the way, that's not hateful to say so. We have to have tremendous compassion on those who are suffering in the midst of such brokenness. It's not homophobic or transphobic or bigoted. It's just to simply say what the scriptures say and to say, hey, we didn't come up with this. God did, and his design is very good. So let's walk in it together, and we're gonna see what this whole thing's about, and I promise it's leading somewhere awesome. Marriage is also for life. It's also for life. It's a public covenant between one man and one woman until death takes one of the spouses. And that's why it's not to be entered into lightly. People who are considering getting married need to have the wise counsel of godly friends and family and pastors in the church. Because Jesus says here in verse 6 that they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate God is the one with the authority over life and death, and so it is only God who has the authority to separate a husband and wife through the death of a spouse. Paul writes to the Romans, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Marriage is for life. And finally, marriage is sealed with a sexual relationship. It's sealed with a sexual relationship. We saw that Last week, marriage is the only God-blessed context for people to enjoy sexual intimacy. But we also need to actually go a step further than that, and we need to recognize that in God's eyes, this is actually part of the definition of what marriage is. This is central to the nature of the covenant. And this aspect of marriage is seen in the institution of marriage that we read from Genesis chapter 2, which Jesus quotes here in Matthew 19. He says, the two shall become one flesh. And they're no longer two, but one flesh. In his book uh, on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, um, one of the leading biblical counselors, Jim Neuheiser, he puts it like this. He says, in our culture, the wedding ring is the outward sign of the marriage covenant. According to scripture, however, the sexual union between husband and wife is the sacred sign and symbol of their covenant commitment. And this is always been how the church has understood the marriage covenant. And this is what the world doesn't understand, but which by God's grace we can understand and which we can proclaim to the world with smiles on our faces and joy in our hearts. It's this, that marriage is a public covenant between one man and one woman for life sealed with a sexual relationship. That is Jesus's view of marriage. That's Jesus's view of marriage. This is what he has in mind when, as we're gonna see next week, he teaches what he does about divorce and remarriage. And again, these are sensitive and, and difficult topics, but remember what Jesus is all about. He is here with redemptive hope. He's here with redemptive hope. And so these things belong to the church and they are for our good and our joy. Marriage is from God, it's for his glory. And Jesus esteems it highly, and if we're wise, we will too. I know it's really easy for marriage to be the butt of a joke. We have our talk of balls and chains and whatever the case may be. But hear me now, 
When we actually look at not only what marriage is, but what blessings God gives through it, we see that on the contrary, it is far from dull and burdensome. It's magnificent. It's magnificent. The vision of marriage that scripture holds forth is something the world couldn't even begin to compare with. So let's consider the magnificent blessings of marriage for a moment. So we've just seen what marriage is, according to Jesus. Now we want to ask the question, what is marriage for? What is God up to with this whole thing? And the first thing we see about marriage is that it's an intimate partnership. It's a partnership. And this is in view at creation when God puts Adam in the garden and says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper or a partner, if you will, fit for him. So God put Adam to sleep does the first surgery, Adam wakes up, and in the best kind of surgical recovery anybody's ever experienced, he goes, whoa, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I don't normally wake up from surgeries and sing poetry. Adam did, okay? This is it. This is why Malachi 2.14, which I read earlier, says to the men of Israel about their wives, she is your companion, your wife by covenant. She is your partner. So Adam's given the charge to work and to keep, okay? And Eve is given to him to help him do that. She's his partner. He's better off with her than without her. And if he is the God-appointed ruler over the earth under God's authority, then she is his co-ruler to help him rule well so that the world, the garden would spread, as it were, throughout the world, and God would have a garden temple for his glory filled with worshipers. And that's still the case with marriage today. Even though sin has marred the picture in some profound ways, this is still God's good, very good vision for what marriage is. And in Matthew 19, 5, Jesus quotes Genesis and says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. And the word that hold fast translates or cleave in some of the translations, is it gets to a, a, a strong bond. That's what's going on, okay? You thought Gorilla Glue was strong. Well, wait till you see the kind of stuff that God's putting out, okay? It's a strong bond between these two partners that cannot be easily broken. They're glued together as companions, and this is the Lord's doing, and it is magnificent. In fact, it's so magnificent that God intends for it to spill over in procreation, which is the second blessing of marriage. Marriage is designed specifically for children, and this is the blessing that God gives at creation. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, have, uh, and subdue it and have dominion. He has the original blessing. In both the Sermon on the Mount and here in Matthew 19, Jesus teaches against sinful divorce, and we'll look at the exceptions next week and and look at that in particular. But what Jesus is teaching here is in line with the whole of the Old Testament, which, again, he's the fulfillment of. And so we go back to Malachi chapter 2, and in fact, if you would, please turn with me just to that book right before Matthew, to Malachi chapter 2. I want to show you here how God connects marriage and children with what he says about divorce and remarriage. Malachi chapter 2. And I'll begin in verse 10 and go through verse 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? 
Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Okay, so the men of Judah were divorcing their wives who they were in covenant with and marrying women who did not worship Yahweh. And this is a really big deal because remember what the consequence in Israel was of this kind of thing happening. Moses warned against marrying people who didn't worship Yahweh. Solomon did it in spades. And they have a hill of shame in Jerusalem still where you can see where Solomon devoted an entire mountainside to the temples of the foreign wives that he took. And that was the beginning of the end for Israel. It went down from one degree of spiritual apostasy to another with some bright spots along the way. But nevertheless, it took a terrible toll. And here in Malachi, the Lord says what he is seeking in the marriages of his people, godly offspring. So God has had always two growth strategies for the holy people of God, whether Israel or the church. The first is the conversion of people who do not know Christ so that they might join the family of God through faith and worship the one true God and follow him. That's the first strategy. The second is Christian couples having kids and training them in the gospel from the time they're born so that they'd come to Christ early, Lord willing, and all of it is by sovereign grace. And so God gives the gift of marriage and then he gives the blessing of children within marriage, except, and this is a serious source of pain, and we need to minister to it with compassion, where in his sovereign wisdom, somebody is dealing with barrenness. Okay, it's, that happens, and it's a, ter- it's a terrible hardship. But what we see here, from cover to cover in scripture, is the idea that there, there really is no category for voluntary childlessness. Two people getting married and just saying, you know, we, things are good. We just really like things the way they are. We like to travel and X, Y, Z. We're just not going to do the kid thing. Almost every single time, that's sin against God. It's, it's ignoring his clear commands in Scripture. The command in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply runs all the way through the Bible, and it's an obedience expectation. But more than that, it's a really good evangelism and discipleship strategy. Where else can you get a pagan to come and live with you for 18 years so that they can hear the gospel? (laughs) And when God, by his grace, draws those children to himself, you have a discipleship opportunity to go that in their maturity, they would go out into this dark and broken world as a missionary force for good. And if you haven't noticed, Christians are having more kids than non-Christians are on the whole. And give it time. The numbers look good. Okay? God is up to some good things here. He gives the the blessing of partnership. He gives the blessing of procreation. And lastly, one of the magnificent blessings of marriage is pleasure and purity. It's pleasure and purity. The intimate relationship between husband and wife is meant by God to be a source of delight for each spouse. 
There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to that kind of thing. Song of Solomon is full of that truth. And as we saw in the scripture reading from Proverbs 5 last week, the intimate relationship is also a primary safeguard for a couple's purity, protecting their marriage. And that's why God commands it to be enjoyed often and regularly. Why Solomon says, husbands, always be intoxicated with your wife's love. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, confronting a church that was in the midst of a very sexualized culture with temple prostitutes all around, getting into trouble, he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And that's usually where the men stop reading. Read on. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The women said amen. I'm inserting that's my commentary. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Okay? Regular intimacy is the expected norm and command of scripture. Some have called it a spiritual discipline, and I think that's closer to the mark. Marriage is a public covenant. Now, and again, why is this the case? It's because marriage is a public covenant between one man and one woman for life, sealed with a sexual relationship. Through it, God gives procreation, partnership, pleasure, and purity. And this is, this is just what the church has understood from time immemorial. And it's put there for us in concise form in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Listen to what it says. Marriage was ordained for the mutual health of husband and wife, that's partnership, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with an holy seed, that's procreation, and for the preventing of uncleanness, that's pleasure and purity. This is just God's design. Well, is that all? I mean, that's a lot, but is that all? The good news is no, not even close. Friends, we haven't even gotten to the best part yet. Let me tell you what the very best part about this whole marriage thing is, what the point is. And so our last stop today, if you would turn there with me, is going to be Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. This is going to be the most extended discussion in the New Testament of what marriage is ultimately about. What marriage is ultimately about. This is the marriage's magnificent point. So in verse 22, the apostle says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then quoting Genesis again, which this is, it comes up a lot in Scripture. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here it is. A husband lovingly and sacrificially leading his wife, giving himself for her good, so that she would be nurtured 
in tenderness, gentleness, graciousness, patience, selflessness, seeking her forgiveness when he flubs it up as he's going to often. Nevertheless, telling a glorious story in how he treats her according to God's call. And then she, following her husband's lead and recognizing that as she builds him up and helps him in the things that God has given him to do, she's actually glorifying Jesus and worship is happening. This is how they put the point of their marriage on display. And what is that point? In a word, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the point. This is the magnificent point of marriage, to showcase the gospel love of Christ, who left his father's house as a bridegroom to come to earth and get for himself a bride and bring her home in purity, wearing robes of white when before she was full of the weeds of, of sin and decay, to take her and love her when she was unlovely, and to give us a divine marriage that only God could come up with and accomplish. That is the magnificent point of marriage. A savior who redeemed hell-bound sinners from condemnation and purified them for himself. When God gives marriage and it goes according to his plan, that is what's going on. And so we see the big picture come into full view that marriage is a sacred lifelong covenant full of blessing and gospel meaning. It is a sacred lifelong covenant full of blessing and gospel meaning. And that's what I call the North Star of marriage. And we need North Stars. That's why God put one in the sky. And they tend to come in most handy when you are lost. Well, when two people who are sinners go to the altar, they don't stop being sinners. Okay? They just see a lot more of the sinfulness of each other, even as they enjoy all the blessings and benefits of marriage. And certainly, nobody ever displays the gospel in their marriage accidentally. Okay. We don't, we don't accidentally walk in faithfulness to God. It's hard work. And for many people, they get into years-long ruts of silence and, and bickering and what Paul calls clamor that he says to be put away in Ephesians 4. And the joy of marriage is lost. And people can't see the, the, the forest for the trees, and they certainly don't know the way out. In such a seemingly hopeless situation, I would ask, is there hope? And we all know of marriages that have been affected like that at one point or another. And the answer is, as sure as God is powerful, when two Christians are in a marriage, there's hope. There is so much hope, we can't even begin to fathom it. Because whatever God says he wants, God supplies the strength for. Whatever God says to obey, he gives the spirit to do. He gives us the scriptures. His son's blood was shed for us. We have every resource under heaven, and so we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, thanks be to God. Nothing, no marriage is hopeless. And we've just seen God's blueprint for your marriage, whether you've been married for 50 days or 50 years. And if you feel lost in the forest of struggle, then look up and find the North Star. The North Star is Christ. And one day at a time, with his strength, insofar as it depends on you, you'll walk out. And even when God doesn't do a work of grace in your spouse's heart, you will be able to say, thanks be to God, he was glorified. If you meditate on Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 and prayerfully seek to do it, it'll radically clarify your job each day when you wake up. And so I'd like to finish this morning by looking at five things that every marriage needs if it's going to be the kind of picture that we've seen here from the scriptures. 
First, if marriage is ultimately about Christ and his church, then marriage needs Christ above all. Marriage needs Christ above all. And this means that no matter how much a husband loves his wife or his kids, his first allegiance in everything is Christ. He will cultivate his relationship with Christ first and foremost. His wife will be in the word and in prayer. He will be taking up the scriptures often and spending time with the Lord regularly, praying for his family, seeking the Lord's will for his family, doing good for his family by doing the Lord's will. And it means that each spouse will be encouraging each other in the faith, asking, what are you reading lately? What's, what's God laid on your heart? What are you seeing here in the scriptures? Family worship will be a priority each day. And for those who are not married but who would like to be, it means that you don't even consider a spouse who isn't obviously devoted to Christ above all things. If somebody is a, a potential marriage partner and they're not seeking Jesus first, then they're not the right partner. Paul says in, at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Okay, so there's, there's, there's the boundary there, in the Lord. And so many Christians date or marry someone who either isn't a believer or who's not chasing after Christ wholeheartedly, and that's not only unwise and disobedient, it's gonna be harmful. And God has much grace and much good has come in spite of our actions, but we must seek the scriptures and God's strength to do them. And Christ must have first place in marriage and everything that's on the way. Okay, Jesus has to be there above all. And for those who are spouses, I would ask you, are you waking up each day and being the spouse that puts Christ above all? And at this point, I would appeal to anyone who doesn't trust in Jesus. If anybody is hearing me and does not know Christ, Yes, we are looking at marriage today, but don't miss the point. It's about Jesus. We may be talking about marriage, but the point of marriage is to tell a story that you desperately need. You desperately need your sins forgiven. You desperately need a new heart and a new spirit. You need to look on the sinless Son of God who died for sinners like you and rose again, and you need to enter into the story that marriage tells. And today, if you would turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone, you'll be part of that story. Yes, marriage needs Jesus above all, but so do you. And this morning, you can have him. Returning to marriage, marriage also needs the sacrificial, loving leadership of a husband and the joyful submission of a wife. There's been so so much misunderstanding about Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 over the years. This is almost one of the first passages to come out, especially verses 22 through 24, from the mouths of husbands who are abusing their wives and get into marriage counseling and say, it says she needs to submit. Yeah, and look, read on, it says you need to die. You need to die to yourself. You need to love and lead your wife with sacrificial service. A husband has the sacred duty of leading his wife and kids, and he bears the solemn weight of authority and will be held accountable for how he exercises it and for how he doesn't. Spiritual laziness in marriage is as much an abnegation as the wrong exercise of authority. And the model is what or whom? It was Jesus. And how does Jesus lead his people with his authority? Well, he never treats his people harshly. He never exercises his authority domineeringly. He never kicks back and says, bring me dinner 
because I'm here to be served. No, Jesus says the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the kind of sacrificial loving leadership that a wife is created to delight in and submit to. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story of the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. And in, in Cyrus's kingdom, there was a general in his army who was off doing what generals do. He's at war or something. And his wife, while her husband was gone, was found to have been in treason against King Cyrus. So she was brought to trial. She was condemned. And she was going to be put to death. Word of this got back to her husband, and he rushes back to the kingdom. And you don't do this in Persia. You don't rush into the king's throne room uninvited. But he did, and he threw himself down on the floor, spread out his hands, and says, Take my life, not hers. Spare my wife, please. And Cyrus looked at him, and he looked at her, and he said, A love like that should not be separated by death. I wonder if she had trouble joyfully submitting to a husband who would die for her. That's the picture of leadership in marriage. And marriage also needs a wife's joyful submission to her husband's leadership. She is his equal partner, helping him, giving him insight, using her gifts to the utmost. Next time you're reading through Proverbs 31, take note of what kind of a woman is put forward as the pinnacle of wisdom in womanhood. She's industrious, she's strong, she's smart, she's creative, she's crafty in the good way. And look what she does with all of her gifts. She puts them to use for her husband's good, so it says that she does him good, not harm, all the days of his life. She helps her husband. She doesn't do all this stuff to advance her career. She's about her people. Not as his slave, but as the queen to his king. And as R.C. Sproul says, there's all the difference in the world between a queen and a slave girl. If your marriage would thrive, it also needs to be heartily enjoyed. It also needs to be heartily enjoyed And no, this isn't a silly grin on our face as we go meandering through life. This is the deep heart joy that shows the goodness of a God whom we love and who gave us the gift of marriage. There should be far more romance and date nights after the wedding than before. Too many couples drone their way through life, settled into the routine of married life without enjoying one another. They spend too much time discussing the kids' soccer schedules and not enough discussing each other's insights and passions. There's a difference between life talk, which needs to happen, the schedules and whatnot, and love talk, which is the meeting of minds and hearts. We need love talk in marriage. She needs to know what her husband is up to at work and what's getting him down, and he needs to know what she's been mulling over lately and what she hopes for in the next year. A godly marriage needs the kind of bedrock friendship that outlasts the kids, because kids, and this is painful, they have a habit of leaving. What are we left with? Something marvelous. And if we've done our job with God's grace, they'll be heading into something marvelous. Solomon uh, got a lot wrong on his way to being an old man. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes looking back at all the mistakes he'd made, pondering the meaning of life and how we do this thing for the glory of God. And listen to what he says as a mature man at the end of his life about marriage. He says in Ecclesiastes 9, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Your marriage needs hearty enjoyment. And this pleases the Lord. 
And we've looked positively here at marriage because it's the backdrop against what Jesus is going to say next week as we look at it on divorce and remarriage. And what did Jesus say to the Pharisees in Matthew 19 about that? He said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't let it happen. And what this tells me is that marriage needs fierce guarding. Marriage needs fierce guarding because there is a lot coming up against marriages today, both from outside and within. And husbands, God has appointed you the protector to lead the charge here. That is one of your fundamental duties. You need to guard your marriage zealously against every threat coming at it from the outside. And so I plead with you to reject the world's lies about your marriage. You need to consider yourself dead to every lustful glance at someone who isn't your spouse. You need to protect your marriage from the demands of a world that quite frankly doesn't give a rip whether it lives or dies. Guard yourself fiercely. And you also need to guard your marriage fiercely from every threat coming at it from within. You need to refuse to let anger and bitterness seep into the space between you. You need to deal with things as they come up and reject the lie also that your romance must cool over time. You need to see apathy coming from a mile away, take target at self-centeredness, and by God's grace, put those things to death and love your spouse. Your marriage needs fierce guarding. And finally, friends, marriage needs the church. Marriage needs the church. I tell every couple I've ever premarital counseled that a family outside the local church is a broken family. No matter how good the marriage seems to be, outside of vital connection to a faithful local church, it's broken. And that starts with a husband and a wife who realize that they're in great spiritual danger unless they're part of the heavenly marriage that their earthly marriage is telling the story of. And doesn't that make sense? If marriage here is about the kind of marriage there, about Christ and his church, then godly marriages need to be within the local church. Otherwise, marriage is preaching something. It's not living. A biblical church is one of the greatest safeguards in marriage if both spouses will be honest with their trusted brothers and sisters in Christ about how things are going. Ask for help when they need and exhort, encourage, admonish, support, help, counsel, love one another. Marriages depend on it. Marriage needs the church. And so this is Jesus' view of marriage. Yeah, this is it. It's why he says what he says about divorce and remarriage. He sees marriage as a sacred lifelong covenant full of blessing and gospel meaning. And I'd say that if that's the way that Jesus sees it, that's something magnificent. Please pray with me. Father, Father of lights, from whom every good and perfect gift comes from above. We praise you for the gift of marriage, for the gift of covenant relationship, not only in marriage, but in the church. We thank and praise you that in giving us your son as our great bridegroom, our redeemer, you not only purified us to bring us to heaven, but you brought us into communion with you. We praise you, Lord Jesus for your self-sacrificial love, that by the price of your precious and sinless blood, our sins might be atoned for, that we might be made pure, that we might enjoy communion with you. 
And now, Lord, as we've considered the gift of marriage and the story, this story that it's meant to tell, I pray, Father, for the marriages of our church, that you would strengthen them, deepen them, and spur on your people and strengthen them to cherish this gift. And I pray for the hearts of all those who endure sadness, either in their marriage or because of a former marriage, and who are grieving. Lord, this is not easy, but you are good, and your grace is sufficient, and your power made perfect in weakness. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that for every single one of those whom you have redeemed and brought into the covenant of Sun Valley Church, that you would help us to love one another, spur one another on, to encourage and care for each other tenderly. Lord, do your good and perfect will among us, that one day we might all be gathered together at the marriage supper of the Lamb, praising and glorifying you, because the point of it all has come to fruition. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.